Welcome to the Movie Nuts Podcast. This is our first post-Halloween back-to-regular-movies podcast. And I would like to welcome back our guest, Chris Shelton. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hi, Rob. Good to be here. Good to Montgomery Cliff should be a lot of fun. Well, as, as anyone who's been listening to our podcast knows, Chris and I uh, started off talking about uh, one of our favorite uh, movie stars in his movies, which were Westerns by John Wayne, and Red River brought us to the career of a very enigmatic actor back from the 50s and 60s, Montgomery Clift. So we promised ourselves we would watch some of Cliff's films and get back talking about him, uh, whose career started with, with the aforementioned Red River playing the son of uh, John Wayne in a lengthy cattle drive and whose career is uh, one of those Hollywood stories, as it were. When we talk about... Yes, sorry, when we talk about Red River, uh, I know we touched on it a little bit during the, the John Wayne part, but uh, that was, of course, Cliff's debut after a lengthy Broadway career where he finally decided to go to Hollywood and, and made this first film with, with, if anyone, the Duke. And first impressions of, of Clift on the screen are, are pretty strong, are they not? Yeah, absolutely. And he's worked with Howard Hawks. And uh, the Duke won his absolute best film. So that, that was a really good first, first tag for him. Well, and there's a lot of discussion. Young, vibrant. <laughs> And we're going to find out there's almost two Montgomery Cliffs before and after this car accident. So this is the young, young Montgomery Cliff, and it, it's really good seeing him. Well, and it's an interesting combo because I think it also um, touches on one of the issues that plagued him a little bit through his career, was that, of course, he came from the Method studio, like Brando and several others. And his first, uh, his first movie is with a strong personality traditional actor who didn't think a whole hell of a lot of the uh, method, as it were, in John Wayne. Right. Well, and, uh, you know, and the thing is, at least I think is, even though it does look a little bit like a flash in acting stuff, I don't think it's distracting. Uh, I think sometimes when I see, see Steve McQueen, not to put him down, but he has these really quirky mannerisms, while Montgomery Cliff maybe does seem a little uncomfortable to Cowboy. It does look like he just got off the stage but at the same time, um, he's great in it. You know, you, you get used to his character, and um, and it is an interesting dynamic between John Wayne um, with and versus Montgomery Cliff. Right. Uh, for anyone who hasn't listened to the prior podcast, uh, John Wayne is leading a huge cattle drive, and he and his son Montgomery Cliff come into a, into a tremendous conflict, and there are several scenes with the two men squaring off verbally uh, as much as physically uh, and effectively comes down to the idea that at the end of this drive, it's pretty likely one of them will not survive by the hand of the other. Right. And I think the other thing is uh, uh, you, you hate to be defined by sexuality and stuff like that or even things like that. But everybody, you know, we all know Montgomery Clutch is gay now. And, uh, and, and Howard Hawks is a man's man, whatever that means. Uh, that, of course, that doesn't mean a guy can't be gay and a man's man, but he comes across that way as a director. John Wayne comes across definitely as American's icon, as a guy's guy. And Montgomery Cliff comes across as uh, smaller, shyer, sweeter, gentler, and all these other things. So uh, it was his adopted son. And, yes, right. it's just a contrast between Montgomery Cliff, who, who John Wayne gets after him. You're soft. You know, he's not like this Jerry character who's willing to be... Uh, a tough guy and stuff. So it is just 
it's just a really interesting idea of a father, son, and also just two different kinds of guys, and yet instead of it clashing in some way that just go off the movie, uh, it really pulls its weight. Right. And, you know, one of the things about Cliff throughout the films that we've watched, and obviously we'll talk about ones that are a little less physical in the nature of the movie, is for someone who is a, a stage actor, uh, the thing that I've always, has always struck me is he's he seems very minimalist on screen. And most often, you know, I, I, right? Go ahead. I was going to say, you know, I just want to say that. I think that shocks me about watching these films again. Cause, you know, obviously, even though we've seen the film, a lot of them, before, we wanted to watch, you know, them again, just so we, you know, we're talking about. And I was really shocked how just understated, I mean, that's like the nicest word, minimalist might be the right word to describe his acting style. He always pulls everything back. He rarely lets an explosion go happen on screen. Well, and, and of course, that's always a, a typical, perhaps even generic, uh, criticism of stage actors when you, you put them in front of a camera is they have to realize that they're not having to do motions and gestures and inflections to make sure that the people in the back row get a sense of them. Uh, you know, Olivier, Olivier always used to talk about uh, appreciating the balance because it was a different kind of acting. Uh, and, you know, stage acting, you do have to play to the idea that there are a couple thousand or more people sort of spread around the place seeing you at different angles. And if you're going to reach out to someone, you've sort of got to reach with your whole body to make sure they see it. Whereas on screen, you know a subtle movement of the eyes is enough of a connection. And for someone who is so screen savvy, Cliff's adaptation to film work is, I think it shows why he became such an instant star, is that he seems much more born for the type of acting that film lends itself to than his stage reputation would have made you think? I would say a couple things to that. One is that I agree that, first of all, he's a film guy. And, I, and a guy really I like to contrast with might be Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen came from television where everything's in front of you. So Steve McQueen's always, you're right, moving around his hands, doing quirky things when he walks, taking a, you know, something out of his teeth, doing all kinds of little gestures. Right. While Montgomery Cliff definitely told himself back and it's extremely generous to the people he works with in these movies um, because uh, he's letting them shine. A lot of times, in fact, in fact, for somebody that's a movie star, if you notice through most of his films, he's not listed first. You, know, you think, hey, he's a big, he's a star, but he's not. He's always listed in the third name in almost every one of these movies uh, that we love. He, he pulls back and he allows other people to shine, um, and that is definitely a style that I hadn't thought about until so, so just watching right and and moving from red river whereas as a western and admittedly like as you alluded to he he doesn't present as sort of a, a typical cowboy-esque person but it, it's a it's a good mix because wayne of course was such a physical actor and it allowed cliff right. to sort of smolder for lack of a better word so while wayne could sort of Hulk over him, uh, Cliff's anger was much more under the surface through the facial expressions and, and the eyes, and it really works from there. And you've also said that it's really hard to overpower John Wayne. So Montgomery Cliff, in a sense, doesn't even try. It's clear, but surely by contrast, uh, he holds his own with John Wayne. 
Right, right. And after you move from from Red River, his more famous films, Cliffs, that is, uh, are, are are more understated type roles, more straight dramatic uh, type of roles. Although straight is not also a word well applied to many of his roles either, not from the standpoint of the sexuality, but just the movies he's in, the the better ones are different. They're they're not standard. Hollywood fair. Right. He, a lot of these films, again, where he's not, he's not the first person listed and such like that. So he has to room for these other actors and his style was to be, again, that he understated and it, the, the, the early part of his career, much of it was planned and such and then, unfortunately, because of his car accident and becoming on painkillers and the facial changes they did to him, if you wonder toward the end, is he being minimalistic because that's his style? Or is he forgetting his lines? Or is he just um, deciding to really pull his characters back? Um, it's a little difficult to tell. He's always understated, but he, he's, um, he, he becomes even more so that way throughout his career at a time when method acting had taken over, which involved people with these really dramatic, right. really dramatic emotional outbursts. He was pulling back every step of the way throughout his career. Well, and, and um, to read some of the notes from Stanley Kramer about making Judgment at Nuremberg, one of one of his later films, where he's he's not in it for long, but that's a movie, of course, where there are several people not not in it for for right. long. Eventually, he had so much trouble between at that point the drugs and the alcohol and all of these other things that they had such trouble with his his scene as a witness, which is under 10 minutes, I think it's six, seven, eight minutes, yeah. that Kramer eventually told him that he knew what the character was supposed to do and he should just ad-lib the lines because Clift could not remember them. And Spencer Tracy... And he, and he pulled out a yeah. different sort of acting performance that way. I mean, that's right. what Paul Marcy, the director, always did with people. And, and you're right, that's actually a time where he emotes more because I think when he knew his line, he had mannerisms and stuff, but he had everything planned, and this, like, he was screwing up, like, he was in trouble. Right. And he decided that he was going to step out of the box and kind of improvise and kind of, you know what, I, I'm, I'm an athlete that has one more day in because it's probably like one day, I'm going to pull it out of the box. Right, and, and apparently, uh, as an interesting aside to it as well, uh, Spencer Tracy, who plays the judge presiding over over everything, uh, apparently f- was very fond of him, and they basically made a deal where Clift would just lock eyes with Tracy, and Tracy would lock eyes with him, and Clift would basically speak to him, just act to him directly, and that right. and Clift was able to lock in on that and and give. Uh, one of one of many in that movie. I know we're jumping ahead chronologically. Uh, an interesting, an interesting performance in a film filled with interesting performances. Um, again, Stanley Kramer talked about the the subject matter and so many of the people. And if anyone doesn't know, it's it's the Nazi war crime trials is what Judgment at Nuremberg is about. Spencer Tracy is the judge appointed to preside, and Maximilian Schell and in his, I, I don't know if it's arguable, his greatest role uh, is, is, is the uh, uh, prosecutor. And it has strange vignettes by 
famous stars as various Nazi German type people, including Clift. And it, it, it didn't yes. work quite as well for me. And it, 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 I think it dates a little bit. And for me, I know he does. We have ensemble movies, right? Um, which would be great at times. This one was distracting ensemble movie for me. Uh, oh, and I, and I agree. Feel like it, oh, here's so and so showing up. Oh, here's here's so and so showing up for their cameo. Um, and right. For me, unfortunately, it becomes distracting. Well, it's a very, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I mean, I think the, the first time you watch it, you are left with, is that Judy Garland? As opposed yeah, to, yeah. you know, and, you know, and of course for... It's for a character. Right. And of course for all of, all of us uh, Star Trek fans, it's one of the first significant roles for William Shatner, who is the attache for Spencer Tracy. But, right. Well, you know, if I could also, since you brought up William Shatner, and this might be a very loose connection, so <laughs> bear with me, but one thing we know about William Shatner is that everybody on Star Trek hated him. Well, Montgomery Clift, one thing that you mentioned about Dean Martin and Elizabeth Taylor is just so fond of Montgomery Clift. Uh, Marilyn Monroe loved Montgomery Clift, that whatever he did as an actor, his fellow actors liked him a lot. Directors would be frustrated with the times. Right. Frustrated with the times. But... He was somebody, um, unlike the anti-William Shatner, who, whatever he did in working with his fellow actors and actresses, and again, I think it's because he didn't steal their scenes. Uh, he's so understated. Uh, and they all seem to think he's a really sweet guy. Sweet guy with a lot of problems, but, uh, but uh, a team player is someone that doesn't steal your scenes. Well, and I, I don't know if you've ever read this, but Marilyn Monroe once famously said after The Misfits was completed that it, w- it was nice to work with someone who was even more messed up than she was for once. Yes, I have read her say that, and that, for me, uh, is his last really great role, and he is so superb in the movie. And that might be his only character. Again, I wish I wish we could talk about more than sexuality, but it's my fault, because I keep bringing it up. But that might be the only character that's also possibly gay, because the Marilyn Monroe character is a real flirt. She's fooling around with a lot of different guys in the movie, doesn't mind guys touching her and feeling her up, all sorts of things. And the, her relationship with Montgomery Cliff starkly different than all these macho characters. Uh, he's not after her sex. He is interested in actually the person. And, um, and it, it's really his act. Great performance in a movie has, oh my God, Archibald and, uh, and Eli Wallach. And right. Well, much, knocks it out of the park a little too much. Well, and much, much as, as we uh, alluded to as we were trying to segue out of Red River, there are the, the, the interesting and great Again, and there aren't a ton of them. Montgomery Clift movies are just always at least one good solid step off the beat path. And The Misfits is an example. Certainly, A Place in the Sun is. Uh, suddenly, Last Summer, definitely. I think you and I both agree that he is included in the list of people that are in From Here to Eternity. But From Here to Eternity right. belongs to other people. Although. His role is what it is. I, I, I've always felt, and I, and I think in our discussions, you, you agree. His, his inclusion in the movie is, is significant by the way that that character is used to drive the plot forward. But right. the movie belongs to Lancaster and Burt Lancaster and Deborah Carr and uh, Frank Sinatra. Well, you know, I, it's okay if we, if we sometimes don't agree on everything. And I know what you mean. Well, I mean, from here to eternity is, is not as high on my list being as again as possible. One thing is that you see a lot of different actors and actresses. Ernest Borgnine, 
body aching, all sorts of super actors and actresses. And Montgomery Cliff, by, by being slightly, I don't know if it's cast, but understated, he feels like he's an important pillar player in the movie only. But he's also teamed up with Don Reed, and I think their relationship has a certain kind of spark to it. Um, right. So, so one thing, as I said, I've really, I'm not as big a from here attorney fan as other people. It feels to me like a soap opera. Even the name feels like a soap opera. <laughs> I feel like it could have that organ music as a soap opera. And in comparison, it's the Young Lions, which is over three hours, and war movie covering the same territory. And Montgomery Clips is brilliant. Marlon Brando's brilliant. Dean Martin is fantastic. Um, for me, Young Lions is one of the great war films of all time. And for, from here to eternity is um, soap opera. Soap opera is a lot of white as, as, as you know, Rob, I write about boxing and such, and so the character's supposed to be a boxing. And just like the verdict, I love the verdict of Paul Newman if you played a lawyer. If you're a lawyer, and you say, Ken, I know if lawyers like this. Uh, I know a lot about boxing in the Army in that period, and there's a black people. <laughs> a, lot of black box, a lot of the boxers in that period were black. Uh, and so I, I noticed there's a real a white soap opera that just feels um, cartoonish almost compared to the online. Well, and, and I think if if we are turning the focus to Montgomery Clift and someone were to ask you, and, and I also agree to me, uh, I think the cheap answer of, well, what Montgomery Clift movies should I watch, from here to attorney just kind of comes up by rote because it's kind of by Hollywood yeah, lore like and all that. Yeah, it comes to mind. But it's not. It's not one of my top four. Yeah, it's it's not one of the three that if, if someone said, how what do I – what movies do I want to see Montgomery Clift in? Yeah, it, it's not one of those. It just, again, like I said, it's a, it's, a, it's a famous Hollywood lore movie, and he's in it in his relatively brief career. And, and yes, it, I, I, I don't think it's nearly as representative of him as several of the others we've mentioned. So, given, given that... There are a lot of other actors actresses that are given more meat, and he, he passed the fuck, He's given, he's next to Donna Reed, and Donna Reed I mostly know from, um, you know, the, the Donna Reed show. Film, which, and, and her terrible TV show. Right. So, goody right. two shoes and stupid. Right. That it's nice to see her have a role. And, and again, Montgomery Cliff's very generous with her because she isn't really known as a great actress and yet got an Academy Award, and yet he's mostly giving her a lot of the, you know, take, take the screen away from him time. Right. Here, here's a quick trivia aside, which you may may or may not have heard. Uh, obviously, in The Godfather, uh, there's the character of Johnny Fontaine, who is the godson and who's the actor, the singing actor, who who the famous horsehead scene and all that, where where uh, Corleone gets him the part in the war movie. That that was always loosely rumored to be how Sinatra got his role in From Here to Eternity is the Johnny Fontaine story. Now, uh, okay, I, don't, right. I don't know if any, I don't know if any horses... Gardner got him the role. Right, if, as, yeah, uh, I don't know if any horses were actually killed during the casting of From Here to Eternity, but nonetheless. <laughs> well, anyway, of, of the other ones, since, since we've officially said yes to Red River, I think, and skip From yes. Here to Eternity, at least for Montgomery Cliff's part of it, Give give me the next one. You're telling somebody who doesn't know much about Clift what what should they go see? And we've talked a, a little well, bit about the if, Young if Lions. I, I have, I have, I watched. You know, all, all these films I've watched, and, and the only one I'm just going to be honest, I haven't seen that I really want to see is the Heiress. But 
make it difficult. YouTube really, you know, one thing YouTube has done is, you know, all these films of Montgomery Cliff so I can see them all again, while Netflix has, like, nothing. So, right. You um, type in Montgomery Cliff and it says, who? But they slapped the errors with copyright stuff, so you can't see it that easily. But anyway, I would say after Red River, the next one for me would be A Place in the Sun with uh, Shelly Winters and Elizabeth Taylor. He, he tries to get together. He gets together with the Shelly Winters character because her dad runs a business. He's trying to get ahead financially, and then he falls in love with a really rich, wealthy Elizabeth Taylor and decides, you know, Shelly Winters is going to blab about everything. These plain Shelly Winters are gorgeous. Elizabeth Taylor, hey, I'm just going to kill Shelly Winters, and that'll solve the problem. Right. So, he, um, yeah, he's actually the... Of, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it kind of has a trashy-sounding plot. It's not as fun. I mean, I mean it's a, considering Shelly Winters gets murdered, it's a fun film. It, it, it's, so, oh, it's, yeah, uh, it's... And Elizabeth Taylor is very sweet in the film. She sometimes can be... Boy, she, 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 can, she can go at it with, with her attitude and that kind of thing. Right. And she's, she's a sweet girl that everyone tells me they love. Well, and, and yeah, he's actually... He's actually like a cousin... To the to the owner who has a very interesting name to me, and I assume it doesn't have any significance, but their last name is Eastman, like the Eastman Kodak Company right. from years yeah, ago. I thought of that too. But but yeah, he ends up being given a token job on the assembly line, more or less, and and falls for pitiful Shelley Winters, and and they sleep together, and then he encounters glamorous, gorgeous. Whose age, by the way, I'm not really clear about, because she returns at one point to twenty. Yeah, she's like a junior in college or something. Yeah, she doesn't look it, but she's like a junior or a senior at some Sweetbriar denizen type boarding college, apparently. Uh, And and yes, he he is impregnated. Shelley Winters, who always blamed this movie for her. Forever typecasting after that as the the whiny, difficult, jilted girl, which she plays with great aplomb in this. Yes, and then she managed to be so bombastic in interviews. Years later, we thought, hey, you know, maybe that really was her. <laughs> right, right. Well, so so Cliff's playing the the up and comer uh, who who falls for the society girl. Uh, obviously, a little bit, at least in my opinion of their romance for the sake of the screen is is fairly fast-moving and contrived, where they have that brief discussion on the balcony where he claims he's loved her since the moment he saw her, and she admits she's loved him since the moment she first talked to him, or something like that. But their scenes are very tender. Yeah, yes, and, and obviously there is something that to that in real life, because apparently Elizabeth Taylor has fallen in love with Montgomery Cliff, and then he had to explain to her that he's gay, and... She became locked on Montgomery Cliff the rest of her life. That's her best friend, or one of her best friends, and very supportive of the gay community. And so she she really fell in love with him. And you, so the, the stuff going on in her eyes is tough. Um, there might be a lot of realness to it besides just acting. Right, and this this was uh, among their, their couple of collaborations where uh, there are various stories about directors and producers and the fact that his... His drug use and alcohol use was so well known that he basically made productions uninsurable. And that right. I, I think yeah. he was uninsurable suddenly last summer, which landed him a job. Right. And, and it's very unusual to have an uninsured actor on the set, especially when it's unreliable. I can't remember his line. He might be on drugs. Right. And, and 
reading the background, I guess he really did have a lot of problems and such, and so much so that the director was cruel to him. So Catherine Hepburn, when the filming ended, if you believe the lore, right. said, are, are you done with what you need from me? And um, Makewood said, uh, yes, that right in his face. Yeah, uh, I mean, as you as you talked about earlier, among the actors he dealt with, the actors adored him and and seemingly defended right. him uh, against against all comers. Uh, even though it's not hard to imagine, uh, much as Marilyn Monroe did and others did, you know, they drove people crazy during production. But the problem was when right. the film came out, it was brilliant. And people flock to it, and all those things. So what? What do you do? Uh, I mean, I'm sure John Huston's legendary on the set drinking probably went up at least five notches with Marilyn Monroe <laughs> and Montgomery Clift while they were making uh, the Misfits. Uh, Clark Gable certainly was not shy about his disdain for dealing with both of them and and their inability to do takes well and to show up on time and that they were always coming off of some sort of either hangover or whatever. He's an actor, though, because he, you, you, spend, you see him adoring Marilyn Monroe, but not in real life. But he looks like he's adoring Marilyn Monroe right. himself. And looks right. like he mostly, uh, you don't see any sense with him in Montgomery Clift in the movie itself. Uh, I mean, in the, the characters, too. Right. But I mean, Clark Gable is professional. It's one of yeah. the best roles. And he really showed up, you know, on time. And, and, and I think what hurt the message was then because he died before production, people blamed Marilyn Monroe for killing him, which is a really bad way to start a movie. Right. So you need a little time to distance yourself. And the fact that it's a Western that's modern, like Rokeback Mountain, and, but it's not a shoot 'em up from the 1800s Western. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's a very odd, disjointed Western. And, and I guess, again, I think it goes back to and maybe this is to um, to Cliff's credit, but his movies are tough. The, the majority of his good movies aren't just Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, even Clark Gable accessible. And this one is no different. Uh, the Misfits, I'm referring to. It starts oddly, it moves oddly, and, well, the, you know. The nice thing, though, is it moves with Clark Gable being flirtatious with Marilyn Monroe. And there's a 25-year difference, at least, between them. Right. And, and, and a lot of times, you see, I just see Woody Allen in movies. And I, you know, I'm a, I think I'm a favorite Woody Allen fan than you, and I really like Woody Allen. But I think he needs to take himself out of the movies. Right. Uh, but, but because there's still a certain a manliness to Clark Gable, good looks to Clark Gable, sure. and Marilyn Monroe's, you know, fabulous looking, you still could believe these two people could hook up, even 25 years apart. Uh, she's attracted to a real good-looking guy. There's a real barrel, tough, Man, man, no nonsense kind of guy. So, and so to see him try to charm her by always going to show her how to dance, and he's going to try to use what he thinks is a sense of humor and kind of show her the ranch. Uh, it, it's nice to see that flirtation from Clark Gable. That's um, that's that's both. He's still a, a sexual person at sixty, but he's also a gentlemanly man's man who, who quite frankly, pulls it off better than say a John Wayne who really struggles with women. He said Clark Gable. Knows with it, or he knows them when he needs to know them. Right, the attractive one. Well, and as you, as you talk about that, the the sort of I, I don't want to say fly in the ointment, but the odd man out again in this movie is Clift, 
that they they pick up midway as the broken down multiply time concussed alcoholic rodeo rider who ends up understanding Marilyn more than her other two potential suitors do. Right, the only one that he would try to really understand her. As I said, I, I think that's the only character that could possibly be gay and it wouldn't make any difference. Um, he, his character um, never makes a move on her, doesn't look at her that way. And the Marilyn Monroe character isn't even just two guys flirting with her. The guys in the bar who are, who are touching her butt and, you know, and feeling her right. up. And Marilyn Monroe doesn't care. She likes this. She likes all that attention. Um, and so the other person that, that's besides flirtatious besides our cable, Eli Wallet. Right. And I think one thing about Eli Wallet is when you mention movie stars, oh, that's Clark Gable, that's Marilyn Monroe, that's Montgomery Cliff. But I think Eli Wallach is not a is not a movie star. He's a great movie actor. And so right. a lot of times I'll watch Eli Wallach movies and not even know it's him until after the movie's over. Go, right. Who was that? Oh, Eli Wallach. Well, um, and, well, but he, he has to hold himself to a slightly more thankless role, but he's ultimately the guy who tries to rule Marilyn Monroe, but ultimately hates women. Right, right, and they have they they have their their moment there towards the end. Uh, for if uh, for those who haven't seen the Misfits in real short detail, um, they are out in Nevada, and Marilyn is just coming off a divorce, and she lives with a landlady played by Thelma Ritter, who apparently <laughs> recruits people getting divorced to live in her boarding house, and they encounter. <laughs> That's I, I, an interesting because she it claims to have been part of some bizarre number of divorce hearings. But anyway, uh, they encounter Eli Wallach and Clark Gable, who are both literally cowboys in the sense of the word that they ranch and they go out and they catch wild mustangs and sell them and all these other things. And they basically just agree to kind of go off with them to Gable's house out in the middle of the desert. And yeah. And sort of yeah, this sort of a character yeah. study than a driven plot. Right. The, the, the idea of doing that is sort of never explained, and the fact that Thelma Ritter effectively just up and leaves her home to go do this. But they, they turn into this huge uh, party house type of a circumstance, and Gable and, and Monroe uh, get together. Wallach is jealous, and then they find Montgomery Clift, and... Constantly throughout the movie, Marilyn plays this person who sort of has this do-no-harm mentality. And I'm not doing justice to the character because, again, whatever you think of Marilyn Monroe and and how you picture her, uh, she's absolutely fabulous in this movie. Um, But in a way that you'd never... considering it's her last film. Right, yeah. I don't even know how to describe her character other than she's almost the film's conscience. I would, yeah, I would just say uh, she, she is a divorcee, but she's flirtatious. She's very comfortable with her sexuality. In fact, the film has, a, I think, a much more sexual vibe than you might think if you haven't seen the film. Mm-hmm. It was written by her husband, Arthur Miller, who did Death of a Salesman. Right. As a gift to her, and they too. broke up during it. Yes, but there's a lot of pictures of getting guys groping and sort of molesting Marilyn and showing a lot of pictures of her butt. Uh, and yet, it's not bothering Marilyn Monroe. She likes it. They show her naked, you know, she slept with Clark Gable and she's nuked from the backside. And yet, again, it's not exploiting a woman. Marilyn Monroe seems to thrive on her sexuality and the fact that people give her attention. And so the Montgomery Cliff character becomes extremely important 
because Marilyn Monroe realizes she needs something else besides everyone looking at her sexually. And this is a guy who wants to know who she's like as a person and, and what, what are you feeling. Um, and she doesn't have that in her life and realizes, hey, she needs, besides people being attract, guys being attracted to her, she's a friend. Right, right. And it's, it's another excellent role for Clift, which seemingly all of these roles have either an implied or inferred or made up connection to the various demons that plagued him uh you you could yeah, make a true. you know you you could make a pretty square analogy that the rodeo rider character in the misfits is pretty close to the latter day actor character that Montgomery Clift had become to Hollywood broke drunk difficult uh when right. when on his game the best there was and, and really, a mess up in the sense that, hey, look, when, when Clark Gable and Eli Wallach are collecting these Mustangs, you know, it's dog food. You know, dog, that's what dogs eat. You know, you do that for money. Right. The Montgomery Clift character seems unrelated to making money. Like, what are you going to do with your life? You know, right. that's what people do. You know, every, every time a, a dog eats, you know, they eat something. And, and the Marilyn Rose character is like, Montgomery Clift, she's like, no, no, no. I don't care if somebody does it. I just don't want to know the person that does it. Right. And uh, Clark right. Gable, by the end of the movie, is very puzzled by her, um, while Montgomery Clift character, the more screwed up both of them are, the more they seem to connect. All right, last word on The Misfits, I, I have to get your take on it. The, the My my only criticism of it that's substantial is I, I hated the ending. I didn't think, my, I didn't think Clark Gable and Meryl Monroe sort of look at each other and decide, hey, I guess we really are for each other and walk off after all that. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree that, that these were two people who you could see getting together, but not forever. Yeah, I mean, they both laid each other bare. He, he, he sees from what Clift does for her who she is, and it isn't what he likes or wants, and then in sort of a, a nod to each other, they decide, well, we can get past that. Whereas, well, yeah, and, he you is, know. and he is getting Clark Gable, the actor, and Clark Gable in the role is getting older, and this girl's frustrating him more and more. Um, and I think his elderly sort of way would say, you know what? I, I think I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to use this girl as fun, but I think I've had my fun. I think that maybe I need this. This is it. This is going to make me crazy. Um, um, it's, I'm going to get injured. Things are, things are really bad, you know, because of this girl. I, I do love her, and I'm glad I met her, but this, this is definitely a girl with too many problems. Right. Well, I, I think the, the entire chasing the Mustang scene, which, by the way, is awfully hard to watch, just for how the horses are dealt with, and it really sort of reemphasizes the idea of what their ultimate fate is going to be. But after all of that, I don't think there's any other word for how their relationship has become other than the, the now cliched term toxic. And for the to end, yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I mean, I do think it makes sense and and works perfectly that Clift can't have her. It just it doesn't play because and he doesn't want he doesn't want her. Right, right. Right. And then it turns out that he like Wallach kept thinking himself. Right. Actually, hates women and really isn't that nice stuff. Uh, he's pretty self-serving, so he deserves whatever he gets. Um, and I think one of the things I'll let you conclude your team, watching those Mustang scenes is really hard. Is that the point you think Archie was going to die, and that maybe he shouldn't be doing these things? 
No, I, I, yeah, I agree. I just, I, but I mean, I know the scene is shot to be awful. I mean, it, it, it only right. makes, it, it only makes Marilyn Monroe's constant wincing at it more empathetic because you're wincing with her uh, as, as they yeah. go through it. Well, let's move on from the misfits, which of course both you and I would would put on the list in some in some order. Um, and we talked right. a little bit about yeah, a, a yeah. place in the sun, uh, which again is is a, a really solid drama pot boiler type. And and Clift again is is so understated. Uh, I guess I guess, and I think you talked about it a little earlier and brought up Brando. When you think method. This isn't what you think. Uh, and A Place in the Sun yeah, is a perfect remember, example. Remember, besides, besides the Stella Stella scene, you take a Marlon Brando um, rating Vivian Leigh and a very sort of vicious, violent, sexual scene that she's not completely opposed to, while, again, Montgomery Clift is the absolute opposite of Brando. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I think one of the scenes that works so well because of that is, is the scene where Shelley Winters meets her demise because after sort of simmering through the movie, when Shelley begins to recite how wonderful their life will be when they have no jobs and no money and a bad marriage and blah, blah, blah. He finally gets enraged at her and it's, it's very brief, uh, but, but very effective. But it's also methodical because he doesn't just learn the spot. He decides, Right, right. It's it's a very it's an interesting scene, and and not to nod every suspense movie to him. I would have liked to have seen it being a little more Hitchcockian, only in that you can see it. But George Stevens is is a very straight up uh, director. In fact, Cliff referred to him as a technician. Uh, that would have been an interesting moment uh, for one of Hitchcock's famous camera movements, whereas he's sort of seething over what she's saying. If the camera had panned suddenly high above them, you know, or down into the water below them, you'd have yeah, gone, uh, uh-oh. But, but again, the the chemistry how, between... How he would film in the scene, you've seen that you have watched, and he goes out in the, out in the river with her out in the boat, and then takes yeah, it, yeah, it would have been it would have been more visual, I I think. Um, but it, you know the the chemistry it's like the bubbles popping up at the at Shelley Weaver's bubble, right? Didn't show her actually being thrown into the river, right? No, you're, you're right. You would have gotten a huge close up of her eyes getting big. And a splash yeah. in the background as the birds flew away from a tree, and then the bubbles coming up, and everyone right. would have gone, "Oh, uh-oh." Uh, you know, I, I guess one of the other things about *In a Place in the Sun* is as good a, a movie to talk about it is, um, even in the scenes where he is is impassioned with Elizabeth Taylor, he gives off such an odd air of aloofness. Now again, we're we're also right. talking about a, a time in acting where Elizabeth Taylor was expected to grab him close and close her eyes, and I've never loved you know really over the top, etc. But he is so understated that I 
in real life, I feel like she would almost have looked at him and said, now you really do love me, don't you? Well, you know, you're right. In fact, one of the things, oh, no, there's one thing, and then I'll, I'll get to that, that part. Uh, just in case, anyway, and see if the person who plays the district attorney prostitutes is Raymond Burr. So I think he parlayed that into Perry Mason for a lot of years. But anyway, yes. apparently, and at the ending, uh, Montgomery Clips is going to death row to be executed. Right. And the director told him to do something to kind of have some kind of reaction, whatever you want to do. And he said no. He said that he didn't think the character would have one. Um, so that really sort of represents exactly how he, how he looked at things. Don't don't do anything overt just to win the Academy Award. You know, do, do stay in character, and, and a lot of his characters were understated and aloof. Aloof is a very good term to describe Montgomery Clift. I mean, even even his sort of side-cocked smile seems... Uh, contrived isn't the right word. Forced? Um, un, not natural. And and there, I, 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 that was one of the things I kept thinking because, again, uh, not, I'm not criticizing Elizabeth Taylor, but, you know, she, she was always so beautiful and had the perfect facial features. And so when she throws herself at somebody and closes those violet eyes and the big smile, you're like, yep, she's in love with him. And he... And his right. his give off in reverse is just it, it's you know it's well, about ten degrees it, it, colder. It, it works in the movie because maybe somebody like Elizabeth Taylor, not just the actress, the real life person, but even maybe the character in the movie. They don't backdrop it. They say all the guys doing everything she says, doing falling for her completely. And this guy, right. because he's a little bit more aloof, maybe he's a little bit different. Maybe he's a little bit this and that. And plus, while he doesn't like her, he also likes her money. <laughs> Um, right. So I think his, his understated qualities really work. Of what what really are his motives? Um, well, let me other let, than get rid of Shelley Winters. Well, let me let me ask you the good second question on here because I I, I read a few oh I don't know, takes on it. Uh, one stated that he was that it's a movie about a guy in love with two people, one who had nothing and one who had everything. I don't know that I think he was ever in love with Shelley Winters. No, I don't think he was. I think, I think, and, um, I mean, apparently that's what the heiress is about, which I haven't seen, that, but that character overtly is never interested in the girl. He pretends to lie. But I think that Shelley Winters was just an advancement to a job, and, and that the Alicia Elizabeth no. Taylor character, while it's another advancement, um, there's something in her, whether it's even that she, you know, it's pretty or sexy. Maybe he, this character seemed like Mary Monroe character, somebody who's got a puzzled soul, and they just connect a little bit on a soul level. Um, but, um, I mean, he's really, you know, whatever it is, he has multiple motives, sort of. Um, but I don't think he ever, right. ever liked the Shelley Waiter's character, not even for a moment. Right. Yeah. Gee, well, uh, and, and... And somehow, isn't the worst heel on earth? You think if somebody's like that, and again, if somebody overplays that, they are, they're either the... The lovable villain type, you know, um, or or um, you hate them, and yet maybe because you're right, because he's sort of distant and aloof and understated, you never really hate him. Even, even the whole time, um, he's, he's really a cat to the whole film. Yeah, it, it's 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 unclear the depth of his of his feelings for Elizabeth Taylor. But I've always right. felt it was not very unclear that the depth of his affections for Shelley Winters 
was that she was convenient because he never possibly imagined having a shot at somebody like Elizabeth Taylor in, in anywhere in the offing. So here's this sort of pitiful little co-worker. Or that money and lifestyle. Right. And suddenly, yeah, suddenly it, it happens. Um, so that's... So if Montgomery Clift has two loves in that movie, it's Elizabeth Taylor and money. And I right. think Elizabeth Taylor might be second. Right. Well, and advancement, as he uses many times for the excuse to Shelley Winters why he blows her off, is this is an opportunity for advancement, and this is an opportunity for advancement. And, yeah, it's, 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 um, it is, it, it's, and the connecting, it's a, the connecting film, part of the film, at least still for me, is you, you have seen these relationships where the guy really doesn't like the girl, but the girl is going to try to hook him in, even if she knows he doesn't love her, but she's going to hook him in anyway, and it's unhealthy, and you don't get involved in it. You're like, oh, you know what? These are two other people's lives and stuff like that. You stay out of it, but you, you see these types of relationships. So um, there's, there's a realness um, in that sense uh, that she knows he doesn't love her, but she's just going to hook him in and not give him a choice to be forced to be with her, uh, and I've seen these kinds of relationships. Well, I, I guess let me, let me close a, a place in the sun with a question for you, and I'll, I'll give you my side of it. Uh, afterwards the the significant scene in the movie before we get to the murder and all that is when they're up in the i think they're in what lake at lake tahoe or near there and um elizabeth taylor elizabeth taylor's father wants to have the talk with with him as the potential suitor and he says in the father's mind exactly the right thing which is the if you don't think I should see your daughter, I'll quit and the right. whole nine yards. Tell me what you think. Was that legit or, or what did you take away from that scene from Clift's side of it? I hadn't, I hadn't really thought of that scene particularly, but I know what you mean. I remember the scene. And, no, I think what he was doing is he knows he's a young, nice-looking, polite young man um, who... And, and, yeah, and smart, smart enough to say what he's got to say. And if it works out, great. And if it doesn't work out, well, he and Elizabeth Taylor are going to see each other secretly. I agree. I, I think it was wholly contrived, and he said what he thought the father wanted to hear because that would be consistent. I mean, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the movie, he basically got this opportunity by running into this supposed family member as a bellhop, and they never really talk more about that, but I've often wondered, even though I don't think it's ever really discussed or explained, my feeling was always that was just happenstance. I mean, not everyone in the world whose last name is Shelton is related to you. But right. But if you encountered someone that you wanted to be connected to and who told you a little about themselves, you could say, well, my family of, in this case, Eastman's, is from blah blah blah. Yeah. So I, I, my feeling is, is that the thing was a con from the get go. Yeah, you, they did. You don't show why he became who he is, but from the time the movie begins to the time he's executed, uh, he's really just a cat looking out for himself. Um, other than he, he does seem to have feelings for Elizabeth Taylor, and and she's a real gorgeous looking girl, um, no doubt. But but he, he's really just looking out for himself, and then he's able to charm us, the audience, the same way he char he's charming her family uh, and charmed initially Shelley Winters 
there there's something supposedly sweet about it, which may not be true. Right. But, but we're tricked along with characters in the movie so that we, it's hard to hate him. Right. Well, and and I think the title, uh, which actually has its own interesting backstory, is clearly alluding to that idea. He is has always been in search of his place in the sun. Right. I don't know if you know the. Have you ever heard the story about the title? No, I, mean, it, I, I haven't really thought about it. So you're talking about it right now. I go, oh, you know what? Now I'm thinking about the title. So go ahead and tell it. It's uh, it's taken from a story called um, American Tragedy, which had been made into a prior movie, and I can't recall who was involved. And it was a big fat dud. And so when there was talk of remaking it and Elizabeth Taylor got approached and was attached to it and everybody got fired up, the one thing everyone agreed was we are not calling it an American tragedy. And in the production people who, probably George Stevens production people, they effectively held a contest, name this movie so people will come see it and it won't scare people away and eventually one of the staffers came up with A Place in the Sun, and that became the title of the movie. I did know it was a remake, and you're right. I, I think it was a good idea, because I like, the, I like uh, Place in the Sun better as a title than American Tragedy. You know, you know what I always think of it as, uh, for some reason, because of the way they're all titled? I always think it should have been an Ilya Kazan movie. A Place in the Sun, On the Waterfront, Facing the Crowd. <laughs> they're all these sort of little... You know, little yeah. wink and a nod phrases. But I get you right. It always has an optimistic sort of title, even though it's a bad person looking for his place in the sign. Right. Well, speak, speaking of uh, bad people, I don't know is exactly the right phrase for it, but I, the our, our last, if you want to know Montgomery Cliff, you probably need to see this one. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm going to defer to, to Chris, and we'll talk about the Young Lions, which I have yet to see because I haven't found three hours. But if you want to see a movie that will leave you, I'm not even sure what the word is. Uh, I am referencing the Catherine Hepburn, Elizabeth Taylor, Montgomery Cliff classic by penned by Tennessee Williams, who had Gore Vidal help him with the script, by the way. Um, suddenly last well, I think, summer. I think Gore Vidal took over the script. I, I think right. we were going to go over suddenly last summer, but, but I believe, well, I'll let you do your introduction, but, but yes, it was, it was Tennessee Williams' original play, right. and then I think about a half hour into the movie, it's Borbanov's movie in a very thick and disturbing way. Uh, it's, it's a movie that, um, topic-wise, I'm not sure, well, no, I am sure. It would be an independent movie nowadays. No studio would bankroll this story now. Uh, it would end up as well, a... Well, I guess because it was right? Elizabeth Taylor, big star, left MGM, so she kind of had her pick, and sometimes a big actor-actress can can get their way. And then land Catherine Hepburn, and, right. and Elizabeth Taylor forced Montgomery Cliff onto the movie, on his shirt. And just to say my impressions on it, because you watched it, and so I said, you know what, we're going to do this together. I'm going to have to watch this all the way through. Now, I thought I'd watched it once and didn't like it, but when I was watching it all the way through, I realized... So I turned it off after a half hour because the first half hour, which is Tennessee Williams, which you think would be the good part, it is nothing but Catherine Hepburn talking, talking, right. talking, and talking. Right. With Montgomery Clips sort of mumbling questions here, there's a doctor who's going to perform a lobotomy on Elizabeth Taylor, and and Elizabeth Taylor had been here the first half hour, and I just after a half hour of this nonstop talking, 
I turned it off, but because you watched, I said, you know, I'm going to go through this entire journey with Rob, and oh my God, I think it was a nightmare journey. It's... It's a movie that I, I, you know, I'm, I'm really a little, a little torn about how much to describe it because in, in, in fairness to it, you know, it, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's one of those movies where if you're going to review Psycho for uh, 10 people who've never seen it, the first thing you don't say is, oh, and Anthony Perkins plays his mother, you know, it, because you'd like them right. to at least enjoy the movie, but let, let me give it my... 20 words or less, and you can add or omit whatever, whatever you think. Basically, uh, as you, as you talked about, um, Clift is a doctor who has come to a new hospital with this revolutionary technique for gulp lobotomies, uh, to help the mentally, uh, well, the insane, I guess, for lack of a better word. And he's come to this and the hospital is, poorly uh the facilities are very poor uh, it opens with a, a surgery scene where the lights go off and the the balcony may fall in on them and he's very frustrated with the facilities and suddenly hope to fix the hospital emerges in the form of eccentric wealthy widow Catherine hepburn but she wants to meet him which doesn't in and of itself seem terribly odd until she begins to talk about her recently she deceased down son. An elevator looking like my fair lady or something. Right. Go ahead. Right. And uh, she begins to talk about her recently deceased son, and we come to find out that the reason, effectively, she's willing to sponsor the hospital and Montgomery Cliff's work is because she wants the first patient from the new endowment to be uh, her is it, its niece, isn't it? Uh, Elizabeth yeah. Taylor, who has been assigned to a convent, basically, at this point. Um, you meet her, you meet Catherine Hepburn's lecherous relatives, played by Mercedes McCambridge, who would later become far more famous for nothing else than being one of the many voices of Reagan McNeil in The Exorcist, and, and her... Uh, slapdash son played by Gary Raymond, who, if you remember the 1960s television show, the rat patrol was one of the, one of the guys out in the desert with Christopher George. But at any rate, um, as Chris alludes to the first half an hour of the movie is basically Catherine Hepburn reciting lengthy Tennessee Williams passages, her famous Catherine Hepburn voice and feeding Venus fly traps. And then Clift meets Elizabeth Taylor, and the whole thing kind of turns on its head. And eventually, the, the it's a little bit of a mystery because the question the becomes: mystery, the mystery right? is the the Catherine Hepburn's son is dead. It turns out that there's some sort of secret because he's a really awful, disgusting person who has died. Elizabeth Taylor knows the secret of not only how he died, but what was it about him that was disgusting. Right. So Catherine Hepburn is going to, it's probably a funny plot, wants to pave his doctor in a hospital and build a facility if they'll perform lobotomy on Elizabeth Taylor. Right, to effectively silence her. Right. Uh, and and again, uh, as, I, as I think you're alluding to, 
there isn't a, there isn't a lot of plot. It's that. That's the plot. Well, and, it, it switches. It switches into not even three acts. It switches into the first half hour. It's really just nothing but Captain Hepburn talking while Montgomery Cliff sort of nods and, and sort of asks a question here and right. there. Then really the next two thirds of the movie is Elizabeth Taylor reciting dialogue in a histrionic manner um, while she's in this insane asylum, um, knowing that she's going to get a lobotomy and um, and sort of just again sort of being hysterical and sort of everything she says while Montgomery Clift does what he did before. He sort of is quiet and occasionally asks a question here and there. Um, and but he's going to go ahead and do this lobotomy because you know the hospital is more important than one person's life. Right. It's it's very much. I think you you hit the word. It's a bit of a nightmare. Um, it it strikes me as the kind of movie that on a rainy Saturday afternoon Stanley Kubrick would have put on. Um, but ultimately, the strange part about it, much like a lot of these Montgomery Clift films, is that the pieces of of the story and of this this character, whose name is Sebastian, the son of Catherine Hepburn's ring very true not only with Tennessee Williams, the author, but ring true about what we now know, did not know then, but now know about Montgomery Cliff's life. Well, right, and I'll, I'll, I'll say that, you know, you never want to hear the ending of these things, but believe me, you could watch this thing and not know the ending yourself. Um, but it turns out that, I mean, they sell this as a sex movie, too. On the posters, Elizabeth Taylor wearing a really sexy bathing suit so if you were in 1959 or whatever, and you thought, oh, wow, I'm going to see an Elizabeth Taylor kind of sex film, she had a long way to go before she puts on that bathing suit. And it turns out that the reason she puts on the bathing suit is that her husband, Sebastian, takes her out into the water so that it becomes transparent so that she's naked, so that she draws in all these straight men, and then the Sebastian pays straight men to have sex with him. And so right. he's been closeted gay, so I guess that's what the reference to Montgomery Cliff comes in. But then Elizabeth Taylor says that the Captain Hepburn character had always known her son was gay and used to bring in gay men for, for him. her son. The, what, so but, now Elizabeth right. Taylor's bringing in gay men who she turns into prostitutes, and then the next step is the guy gets more perverted with these Spanish men, so he starts going after young boys and starts having sex with He becomes a pedophile. So now he's paying young boys for sex, and then a mob turns on him of males and kills him. And you can describe how they kill him, because that part's difficult to know is Elizabeth Taylor recounting actually what happened. Right, although you... you Histrionic, is she adding to it? Right, you see see what she is describing in the film, but it it is literally a man being devoured by his own sexuality, which is... Very yeah, Tennessee yeah, Williams, yeah, and ironically, is somewhat uh, the the backdrop of some of the issues that Montgomery Clift had. Although, you know, I I think as as you've tried to skirt around it, I think appropriately, his sexuality during the time period we're talking wasn't really as big an issue as as apparently it w- it weighed on him because there were a multitude of actors and even actresses who who were homosexual, who were able right. to hide it or that the studios helped hide it or that it didn't really affect their career. I mean, Rock Hudson is the probably the most famous one, uh, who, who had a similar champion in Doris Day 
that Cliff had and Elizabeth Taylor. But, you know, Cliff's issues with drugs and alcohol and depression and psychoanalysis and unreliability and all that was probably more harming. But he seemed to gravitate towards these roles of these substantially damaged people who were damaged in ways not unlike him. Right. Um, he's always damaged before the movie begins, so we never quite know most of the time why he's damaged. Right. But, again, I think what makes him fascinating on screen, like a lot of stars of, of, of bygone times, is when you know something more about him than maybe when the film was made, is, is that it's, it's fascinating to see. What it's fascinating to see is that we have to have a second podcast dividing this one up in half because as you can see chris and i go on for quite a while we hope you'll enjoy the first half of this and we hope you will join us for the second half of the podcast featuring guest chris shelton talking about montgomery cliff which will be posted shortly after this first one thanks again for listening to the movie nuts podcast i'm rob shive